This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Wet Leg Floppy Fingers Edition. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. On today's show, Everything Everywhere All at Once is a carnival ride through the multiverse. This genre-busting sci-fi stars Michelle Yeoh as a laundry owner called upon to rescue not just our world, but all possible worlds. And then Slow Horses sits on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. It stars Gary Oldman as the head of a very unmarried band of MI5 misfits. That's the British Intelligence Service. It also stars Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, and finally... A new indie darling, Wet Leg, is getting a lot of attention, some of it admiring, some skeptical. We get to sort through it all with Slate's beloved Carl Wilson. Speaking of beloved and and sorely missed, we're joined by uh, Julia Turner. Welcome back. Hey, Julia. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for holding down the fort. I missed you. Yeah, yeah. It was a very nice balance of uh, fun shows and uh, and uh, wishing uh, you were here. But uh, anyway, uh, you, of course, are the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate and the author of Cameraman, a, a beautiful book-length essay on Buster Keaton. Uh, hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Good to be here, as always. It's great. And where is here, Dana? Here is me being in the Slate studio for, I think, only the second time in two years. And uh, it's really nice. Just through the glass, I can see our producer and our production assistant, and we can wave at each other and make funny faces and make fun of you without you knowing. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> we should we should get moving. But you were last night in one of my favorite places in the whole world. You were at the Kelly Writer's house in uh, at UPenn. And uh, I hope that went well. Steve, it was fantastic. As you know, the Kelly Writers House on the Penn campus is a mecca for writers. It's one of my favorite places to visit. If I lived in Philadelphia, I would go there to work and study and read every single day. And they treated me like a queen and had a wonderful time there. You can actually see the conversation that I had with Penn professor Emily Wilson on on YouTube, and we'll link to it on our show page. Actually, that reminds me of something. I'm just going to say this real quick because someone scolded me in an email saying you should have announced sooner that you were going to Boston and I only found out the day you were there and I missed your show. So I'm announcing to L.A. listeners that I will be in L.A. next weekend. You can find the information about this by emailing us or looking at my Twitter feed. But I'm going to be at the L.A. Times Festival of Books, as will Julia Turner. So if you want to come see us, ask us about the info. It's actually a nice one-two punch for Culture Fest fans because I'm interviewing Mike Shore, the author of a new book called How to Be Perfect and uh, the creator of The Good Place and and a revered TV writer and sometimes Slate contributor uh, at 1.30. And then Dana is on a panel with Slate's own Isaac Butler and a bunch of other luminaries at 4.30, I think, right? On Saturday at USC campus. So come on down for the LA Times Festival of Books. It is great. Yeah, thanks for the info. That's right. In fact, the best way to find out information about it is probably just go to the LA Times Festival of Books website and search for me and Julia. But I hope people in LA will come out and see us. And if it worked out, I would also love to just hang out and do a little LA meetup with some listeners there. Hmm, Okay, well, and of course, listeners uh, should know I'll be in Ghent uh, trying to get my generator to work. Um, (laughs) Thank you for thank you for the uh, crushing FOMO. But uh, should we make a show? Yes, please. Let's. Uh, excellent. Michelle Yeoh, she plays Evelyn in Everything Everywhere All at Once, a new feature film. Uh, Evelyn runs a family laundromat. She's portrayed as something of an iron lady. She's perpetually on the verge, though. Why? Well, her husband's a bit of a wishy-washy type. Maybe she regrets marrying him. Her kid is assimilating and starting to distance herself from the family universe, rejecting Evelyn just as Evelyn's own father once rejected her from moving to America and marrying her husband. The woman, in other words, is becoming an orphan, but also at the same time, she's expected to be the ballast for her own family. When the family goes to see an IRS agent played wonderfully, I think, by Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, who's been breathing down their collective necks, the whole thing just feels the family, the business, their whole lives uh, feel as though they're about to fall apart when suddenly Evelyn gets glitched into the multiverse. And out of a serial comic first generation, almost like Sundance-like movie, we get uh, glitched along with her into a genre-busting sci-fi adventure. Okay, this is just a very, once it gets going, an incredibly fast-paced kind of, in its own way, non-expositional movie, finding a clip 
uh, was a little bit difficult, so we went with a, a piece of the trailer instead. In it, you'll hear the father character, Waymond, who's himself now in his glitch persona as a hyper-competent you know, uh, a fighter in the multiverse, is explaining the existence of multiple parallel universes to Evelyn. Let's listen. Evelyn, I'm not your husband. I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, no time to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you... Maybe your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. All right, Dana, let me start with you. I I hate to throw the burden of uh, exposition to you right off the bat, but very quickly, the directors of this movie go by the moniker The Daniels. Maybe a little backgrounder on them. Yeah, well, this is only their second movie. It's two young guys who started off as music video directors. They directed the viral video for the song Turn Down for What in 2013. And they've only made one other movie before this, which I haven't seen. It's called Swiss Army Man. And part of why I didn't see it is it sounded really gross. <laughs> the idea of Swiss Army Man, it's sort of a two-hander with Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe. And the idea is that Daniel Rad- Radcliffe is a corpse. He's dead the entire movie. And he somehow becomes... I don't know, semi-animated and becomes friends with Paul Dano. But somehow the idea of dead Harry Potter was so freaky to me that I never saw that well, movie. Well, no, 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 no. Sorry. You're missing the other word in all descriptions of that movie, which is that he is a farting corpse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He is a flatulent corpse who somehow comes back to life and becomes friends with Paul Dano. I don't know. I it, sound, it sounded kind of juvenile to me, but it got good reviews at the time. I kind of want to see it now because that is all lead up to say I really loved this movie. I mean, I don't think it's perfect. We can get into some of the, the shaggy bits and it tries to do so much that I'm not sure it accomplishes everything. But I saw it with my whole family in the theater, not a way that we commonly see movies. I think maybe the first time we've all seen a movie together in, I don't know, a couple of years. And um And it was really rollicking and crowd-pleasing, and the whole crowd loved it, and it could not commit better and more completely to its utterly weird premise. Every performance is incredibly funny and at times very moving. Um, I want to get into, you know, some of the the messagey stuff toward the end. There were some moments that I and my family agreed with this that the um the, the end message felt a little bit preachy, but in the middle of the movie when all of this crazy multiverse stuff is happening, there's nothing preachy about it. It's wildly imaginative, it's extremely funny and smart, and everybody should see it. Ooh, okay. That was a that was a pretty uh unrestrained pa- uh, table pound. Uh Julia, what do you what did you think? Bang, 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 joining right up. I loved this movie. I feel like when I've been back to the movie, we've talked about this on a few recent episodes. There's just something where it feels like, what are movies even for anymore? Like everybody's practicing this quaint art art form. Sorry, Dana. Um, that's just <laughs> this is not the first time that I have been basically put out to pasture on live <laughs> mic. No, well, just like what is the point of movies? I keep, <laughs> I can't keep wondering um and then this is a movie that like makes the case for the point of movies like a movie can take you on a certain kind of ride and make you see the world fresh uh in in a very particular way that's different than what a great tv show does and this movie not only entertained me and delighted me and moved me and made me cry and made me think about how much i love my family and how lucky i am to be alive um it also made me think like Hell yeah. Interesting brains can do interesting things with the world of actors' faces on screens and practical effects. Um, I I absolutely loved it. And I agree, it's, um, you know, shaggy. It's not necessarily disciplined, and it's two hours and 20 minutes long, which is long for something with the kind of indie sensibility that it has. But um, I didn't feel, didn't feel particularly too long to me and it 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 seeds all these goofy premises 
throughout it as she begins to think about other universes, like the one where she's a famous actress or the one where everybody's hands have floppy hot dog fingers. And you're like, what a funny throwaway joke. And then they're like, nope, that joke didn't get thrown away. (laughs) Get ready to see those floppy fingers again. (laughs) I have that joke right here. Yeah, Julia, I mean, this is a movie about regret when you really look at it. It's about, you know, the existential concept of finitude and whether you can uh, accept it, accept that you're leading only one life. From that comes all of this wild Rick and Morty zaniness uh, of the sort of sci-fi premise. But at its core, it's about a bunch of people who, you know, regret being tethered to one another and have to come to learn that you get only one life. It is not a repeatable experiment. The choices you make determine paths you end up on inexorably and um a degree of tender acceptance allows for forbearance to others and love and selfhood that said i didn't really like this movie what i'm gonna shock you by saying that i loved certain parts of it i thought it did something that the marvel movies try to do and fail at which is that the humanist setup gets you to the point where you give a shit about the completely, you know, a-realistic or unrealistic or whatever you want to call it, superhero bits in this case like, you know, Evelyn's kind of a in 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 the multiverse can be a kind of superhero in many different dimensions. That was cool, but I thought the I thought the laundromat sequences knowing nothing about these filmmakers and almost nothing about the movie I thought was bravura. I was like I could have watched that. I, I knew I wasn't going to but I could have watched that for an hour and a half or, or more. But let me just say quickly where it lost me a, a little bit. I think it's possible to overstuff the turkey um, and start to lose individual flavors. I definitely think they did that. And I thought at its worst, there were two kind of mutually reinforcing lazinesses that can be used to each to hide the other in a way. The first laziness is just the Rick and Morty thing where you bump the Simpsons up to a whole nother level where just this like massively referential and kind of slightly attention deficit and you're bouncing around. It's like the multiverse crutch in some sense. And, um, and then the second is, is to tie it all together with sentimentality kind of in the 11th inning. Like I, I think they did it well. Everything was, everything was, clever uh much of it was really cunning um all of it inspired a kind of stuporous awe or something i was like oh my god but i was i was exhausted by the end and had a hard time adoring it oh that's so interesting i i mean i guess kudos to the multiverse for bringing us back the steve who dislikes charming things (laughs) You- <laughs> oh my god maybe you could talk about this when you're all partying in la together julia <laughs> um no i mean in a movie that wasn't as sure-footed and and confident and committed to its own bravado um maybe the end would have just seemed mawkish but I was truly moved. I mean, and I think I, I, your point about regret, I think, is right. I, I was speaking to an ardent teen fan of this movie last night after I saw it um, and talking about the fact that it seems like a movie about midlife, right? It's a, it's a, the multiverse is a metaphor for the fact that you only get to pick one life, um, but it is not typically deployed that way by Marvel and others who make films with it. Um so what if you have the nuanced, emotional, regretful texture of a quiet midlife crisis immigrant family drama, and then you mix it up with Marvel-type time-hopping constructs, but instead of using gajillion-dollar VFX to make them happen so they all look kind of cloudy and gray and fake, you use good old-fashioned practical film effects and some martial arts stuff, <laughs> and... Um, and you get something that feels really new. But I I think that the strength of the central performances makes the emotional stuff really land. Like, I wept at the end of this movie. I, all of the Rube Goldberg machines and the goofy raccoon subplots we don't even need to get into and the and the <laughs> rocks. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to keep it's saying things to entice her. The, the rocks were beautiful. And the raccoons, um, like funny. you know, getting to see Michelle Yeoh, 
have this co- complicated, fascinating, and wonderful ro- a role, and to just nail it in the way that she does is such a gift. It's so fun to see the, the many Michelle Yeohs. The other performers are revelations, too. Like, they... They are 100% grounded, a real family tackling a real situation in the middle of all this mm-hmm. floppy-fingered chaos, and I think it works. I mean, I, I, I don't quibble with your quibbles, but I absolutely think everyone among our listeners who's at all interested in movies should go see this. Yeah, to me, the things that would be my quibbles or my notes, you know, if I was seeing a press screening and I had some some control over what the next cut would be, I would say that it could be 10 minutes shorter. I think that it ends, I can see a better ending than the ending that's there, or I, or, or rather sort of I could graft <laughs> the ending that's there, which is really good and made me cry too, Julia, uh, a little bit earlier in the movie because I think... As often happens with actually with typical classic superhero movies, there's a little bit one action sequence too many, you know, and I think the turkey does get a little bit overstuffed there, Steve. But I wouldn't hold that against this movie because its entire ethos and reason for being is so antithetical to that kind of action movie. It's utterly original and um, and it's utterly committed to its weirdness. And everybody on screen gets that. You know, I mean, Michelle Yeoh, who doesn't often get to be funny, at least in the roles that make it to the West, to the U.S., I feel like she plays ice queens and she plays martial artists and she plays hyper-competent, cool spy women and stuff like that. And to get to see her just be this frazzled mess, you know, who really makes a lot of terrible mistakes. And, I mean, the person who she starts out being at the beginning of this movie is you know, sympathetic and likable, but she's not particularly good. (laughs) You know, she's not the great mom. She's not a great wife. She's certainly not running her business competently. She really is a a, a less with it heroine than you often get to see that particular actress play or, you know, most sort of actresses who who occupy that that space of movie star glamour and beauty. Um, So that's incredible. And also, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, as funny as she has ever been, she's already become a meme in my family. We are now texting pictures of Jamie Lee Curtis in her costume from this movie back and forth because she's so hilarious. And also Kei Kwan, who plays her husband, Waymond, who plays uh, the Michelle Yeoh character's husband, who has to do such turn-on-a-dime character shifts as he changes among his different multiverse selves. And is just just brilliant at it. He's he's just wonderful. And the daughter Stephanie Shu is also, I think, great. Tremendous. Like the the, yeah. the the performances are really outstanding. Yeah, there's not one character that I would cast differently. I might give a little bit more time to the daughter's relationship with her girlfriend. I mean, this is a driving thing in the movie, right? That that, that Michelle Yeoh's character's daughter is gay. That she is somewhat uneasy with that, but it's her father, the girl's grandfather, who really doesn't know about it and sort of can't be told. And so there's this whole kind of coming out story that underlies the main plot of the movie. And yet I felt like the girlfriend was really just a stand in, you know, and it's essentially to symbolize like here is a person who is, you know, a girlfriend who represents being a gay girlfriend. And that didn't seem like a particularly queer friendly way to frame that story. There's also a moment and I won't spoil what it is, but there's kind of an anal penetration joke that I found kind of homophobic, especially in a movie that's supposed to be about recognizing a queer relationship. Yeah, it has to go. It's not funny anymore. It just was so out of place. And it suddenly made me think about what I was inclined to most dislike about the movie, which is that it's a couple of wise asses cracking each other up and throwing everything down on paper and then shaping it into a movie. And I don't think it's that. But that joke is just it's it's day has come and gone. Just move on. It's not funny. It is phobic, like in a movie that has this kind of serious nod towards LGBTQ alliance or allyship or whatever you want to call it it just was not it didn't it didn't belong there i wish if i could be glitched into another universe it's um, a crowded manhattan or brooklyn or wherever movie theater filled with other people uh they have uh, a beer on tap and i might have just laughed my way through this and loved it as it was is pretty great uh check it out everything everywhere all at once uh it's in theaters now it'll be streaming eventually shall we move on sure All right, before we go any further, uh, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, our only item of business is to tell our listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we are talking about an article that was published in Gawker, the new Gawker, which we'll also discuss. What is the website Gawker these days? This essay is called The Pity Me Personal Essay, and it's basically a takedown. It argues that a recent trend in personal writing has been delivering, quote, a whole lot of dramatics and zero perspective, unquote. So the three of us read that article. We're going to dig into its argument and decide if we agree that personal essays are getting too self-indulgent and less substantive. Slate Plus members 
members can look forward to that conversation at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, of course, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, onward. All right. Well, Slow Horses, it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It uh, features Gary Oldman. He plays Jackson Lamb. He's the head of something called Slough House, though it's not, it's not actually called Slough House. That's an insulting nickname. If you're there, it's only because you fucked up. You might as well be in Slough. And I just have to hear quickly say, this is the second major pop culture would-be icon with reference to an old John Betjeman poem. He's like the person you've only heard of if you love Philip Larkin. He's this very more English than the English English poet. Uh, and he wrote a poem about Slough, this made-up English town that was the most depressing uh, post-war community you could possibly imagine. Well, here it is again, Slough House. Oldman is a wizened old intelligence hand who's been put out to pasture. He knows that his job is to do nothing, but he doesn't really want to do nothing, and he sees everything or tries to. Um, his hands beneath him include River Cartwright, a young, dashing would-be super agent, uh, kind of in the uh, James Bond mold, hampered by a lifelong accusation of nepotism. His grandfather used to be an intelligence bigwig. Everyone thinks that's the only reason he's hanging on. We see him as, as cleverer than that. It's an interesting twist. He's been exiled from the real show, which, as we see, is a giant, sleek, open bullpen. It's a cross between Houston, we have a problem, and what I imagine like Google headquarters looks like. That's overseen by Kristen Scott Thomas, all right, in the clip we're about to hear, Lamb, who's played by Gary Oldman, assigns his new recruit, River Cartwright, uh, played by Jack Loudon, to dig through a bunch of trash. It's like classic do-nothing assignment, and uh, added to which River has no idea what he's supposed to be looking for. Okay, let's listen. Are we actually acting on any intel, or are we just fishing? Yeah, well, no, you don't get to ask questions. That's for spies who haven't shat the bed. So what do you find? Any old notebooks? Uh, the cardboard backing of one, but no pages. Evidence of drug use? Empty box of paracetamol, yeah. Empty booth walls? In his recycling bin, I imagine. Oh, Christ. Is it me or did all the fun go out of everything around 1979? Are we looking for something, or are we just wanting him to know that we're looking What's at him? What's we? There is no we. It's just me telling you what to do. Okay, do you want to tell me to put him under surveillance? Who? Hobden. What? What, you would be doing the surveillance? Yeah. You? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting proposition, considering the last time you were given any sort of responsibility. <laughs> A lot of innocent people got blown to bits. And there it is. Julia, my sense is this is not a runaway hit, maybe. Some critics like it. I, I detect a lot of fence-sitting in what I'm reading. What did you make of it? Well, I am dying to ask you guys this question, because my interest in the show was driven by the fact that I've started reading the books that are the source material for it. This is this uh, series of um, Spies Gone to Seed books by McHarran, there's a number of them. Laura Miller has written admiringly of them in Slate, and they scratch my um, bedtime need a story with a plot and a brain uh, reading column, uh, which longtime listeners will know that I have need for. So um, it's an extremely faithful adaptation of the books, which I have just read some of. And as a result, I found myself... Uh, having trouble seeing it as a as an object separate from that. Um, I do think that, you know, Gary Oldman's performance here is is charismatic and compelling. And in the early episodes, you begin to see um, the the kind of joke and conceit, which is that this slovenly, um, I think the first sound we hear him make is a gigantic fart. Uh, seemingly gone to seed spy capo um, is in fact has seen things and is hyper competent in his own way as the king of the duds uh, and his magical grumbly grouchy efficacy is uh, an interesting thread in both the books and the show um, I feel like his charges might come across a little underbaked 
our, our would-be hero River Cartwright seems like a bit of a tool. And maybe that's the point, is that instead of seeing his swashbuckling uh, desire for rash action as um, heroic, we get the sense that it's a little bit boneheaded. But I'm very curious what you guys think, because I found myself having trouble seeing the show through the scrim of the books I've just been reading. Julia, would you say that you prefer the books to the show at the moment? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those worlds that once you get lost in it, you're like, sure, I'll take more in whatever format. So it it seems like a fine compliment, and I'll probably keep watching. But the books, there's a very, very British dry deadpan humor underlying the books um, that comes over to some degree in the show, but the show feels a little straighter than the books to me. Yeah, the show is is somewhere balanced in between an actual spy drama with real suspense and a real crime, a kidnapping that they're trying to solve, and what I would consider sort of British insult comedy. And that's my favorite part of the show, I think. It's not just Gary Oldman who's really skilled at it. I mean, every character who is stuck in this place, the so-called slough house, is there because of something they did that, that they screwed up about, right? It might be something embarrassing, like one of them left a classified document on a train, and that's why he got banished from, you know, the good spy house to, to the bad one. Um, and some some others haven't yet said what their secrets are, so they're presumably something worse than that, more nefarious. But they're all really funny and constantly putting each other down, and there's just kind of an atmosphere of, of self-deprecation and depression throughout the whole workplace that makes the workplace comedy of it, I think, more successful for me so far than than the spy content of it. But that said, the show is really growing on me. You know, it, it opens with what feels like a very familiar chase scene um, in an airport. And you feel like, oh, this is a born type scene. And I've seen these things a million times. And then you realize that that's just a training exercise. And that's sort of this great rug pull. And in fact, you never really, at least so far, I'm now four episodes in, um, you never really get back to that, you know, that born identity kind of moment. You spend most of your time in these slovenly back rooms hearing people bitch at each other and ineffectively try to solve crimes that they don't understand. And uh, as somebody who likes a procedural that goes nowhere, like the movie Zodiac, the David Fincher movie. I'm I'm intrigued by that, and and we'll keep watching it. I gotta say, I I, I love it. I really do love it. Um, I, due to a power outage, was only able to watch two. I would have binged as many as I could have. Um, I'm all in, like Tinker Taylor, Gary Oldman, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas as a, as Mum for Ma'am. Uh, you've got a workplace dramedy that I actually think works. It's funny i think these i perceive these people as as real and stuck together for real reasons it's a bureaucratic procedural which has at least a little bit of that you know uh, great plausibility of something like the bureau i mean it's a very different show it's not it's not based on anything so intricately researched but it it plays with our expectations about the genre i think quite quite knowingly but not archly um I love the major setup of Slough House. Uh, I, I buy it. It just kind of, it has this horrible rundown Soviet. You can kind of smell it through your TV screen. It's kind of really depressing. Um, and I like the mini major one. I mean, I I, I I like this twist that someone who's, he's too, who's like Jared Kushner. So he's been dismissed his whole life. He's too attractive. He's too slim. Uh, he's he's too well connected, central... right? His grandfather, who's played wonderfully by Jonathan Price, is an important spy. I'm getting, I'm getting there. Yeah, no, no, not, central to, not to step on you. Sorry. No, and he's and he's a Fauntleroy, and such a person is is going to always be told anything you have is not uh, yours to deserve. Plus, Jonathan Price, just a wonderful British actor. It's always wonderful to see him uh, anywhere. He's really good in this. I kind of believed these people were real. It's the big genre hurdle. Um, as one example of the backstories that get you into Slough being thought out, they're not lazy. His, the Fauntleroy's, is actually quite good. It's it's yet another. It's like they're little Etonian asshole hatchlings working their way up through the intelligence services. Him and a rival, the Fauntleroy and his rival, who's better looking and more deeply Machiavellian and, and nasty, and they're mutually undermining one another. And they've got like an old married couple banter to them. It's terrifically well drawn, and it's that guy pulling a fast one that gets him there. Um, and that, so that relationship is set up for the entirety of the series arc uh, as far as I can see that's tr that's terrifically good job of placing him in his circumstances and us you know now in a position to root for him to get out of them um, I it, and Julia 
most of all, this morning, you've relieved me of that mournful feeling of falling in love for a doomed show. I have a funny feeling this may not find its audience somehow, and I didn't know that there were books. I mean, I get to enter this universe. I, I don't have to... I don't have to get invested and then watch them all disappear like they were phantoms all along. I'm so psyched that these books are good. There's like seven books already and an eighth one coming out in May. So welcome. <laughs> welcome, friend. Um, I'm so I will in. say, I want to steal a note from, from Laura Miller, whose piece you should read about these books. But her read on it was that it was um, a spy thriller for the Gen X age in that all of these people are have the Cold War hanging over them. And Jackson Lamb, the the Gary Oldman character, is a Cold War vet. And there's sort of a sense of like, back in the day, everything was clear and and we knew what mattered. And um, now we're just like stuck in an office and it's very hard to tell what's important and everything's a mess. And half the time it's because we fucked it up. Um, anyway, it was an interesting generational read. So it's a, it's a useful lens to watch the show through, I think. There's one more thing I want to shout out before we leave the show behind, which is the incredible theme song. It's it's written and co-written, I think, and sung by Mick Jagger, specifically about these characters. It reminds me of an old school sitcom theme that would sort of be about the, the, the actual subject matter of the show. Yes. And he apparently yes. wrote it and agreed to sing the song because he loves the Mick Heron books. So that just that made me very happy. It's so funny. I had not yet read anything about the show when I was watching it. And I said to my husband, I was like, what is with this theme song? It's like family ties or something. Like the theme song is literally like, it's a bunch of spies and they used to be good. And then they all went bad. And they- Gilligan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three hour tour. And yet, and you're like, is that Mick Jagger? And is that 2022 Mick Jagger? I mean, talk about like the boomer hangover hanging over all of us. It's like, what? It's- it's so, so bizarre. It's yeah. a so killer bizarre. theme. It's I have never once choice. fast forwarded through it. I want to hear Mick sing about Mick. Forever. I like hate it. I <laughs> think it's terrible <laughs> and also hilarious. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. It's the hair of the fucking dog. It's so. It's like I'm well, like kind of cured of the boomer hangover. Uh, okay, I think we like the show, right? I'm going to watch it through to the end. Everyone with me on this. Yes. Yes, I will continue with Slow Horses, especially because it's only six episodes. In fact, I've read some reviews of it that said it was almost too short of a season to explore all of the the threads that get thrown out. So I would rather too short than too long. I've already watched four. I'm certainly going to watch through to the end. Okay. Uh, Julia, one more thing very quickly. The title of the first of the books? Is Slow Horses. That's easy. Okay, good. Uh, I will definitely check it out. All right. Uh, Slow Horses, the TV show. It's on Apple TV Plus. We're I'm I'm a table pounder on it. I love it. I think you know you guys are more or less with me. So check it out and gently uh, email tapping us. the table to get your attention. No, no, no. Mine's a a pound. It's a British pound. All right, moving on. Okay, well, the post-punk outfit, Wet Leg, they're from the Isle of Wight. They broke pretty big, indie big, I'd argue, during COVID with the song Chez Long, a fun bit of post-punk nihilism. Now they have an album, and uh, I think it's got a little bit of, it's got play and controversy to it. It makes it a, a catnippy subject for us. Uh, Paige and Carl Wilson. Carl is the music critic for Slate. He's the author of the classic 33 and a Third uh, essay. It's since been published in full book form with a bunch of replies. Uh, let's talk about love, uh, exploration of taste. Carl, it's always really cool to have you on the show. Welcome. It's so good to be here. And I'm here in person today, which is an unusual thing. So that's fantastic. Marvelous. Um, we're going to get to a lot of things, but why don't we start a kind of obvious place and just listen to a little bit of the hit. Long in my dressing room and a pack of warm beer that we can consume. 
Carl, I mean, I'm tempted just to hand you the ball and, and watch you uh, run with it, but I guess the place to start is that, you know, it's it has a kind of uh, we're only in it for the money nihilism, you know, a sort of studied soullessness to it um, that's nonetheless incredibly fun. And so it needs to feel like a ruse to work, and some people maybe either don't like that joke or aren't in on it. And so there's this hovering question of are these industry, you know, is this an AstroTurf band? Is is this, you know, is this a cynical ploy or whatever? And the answer is kind of like, yeah, but that's the point, right? Anyway, what am I missing? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I would say it's a cynical ploy. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this story is that they just haven't happened to follow the kind of tried and true indie path and especially for um, this point in the 21st century. Um, so the, the band is centered around two women, um, Rianne Teasdale and Hester Chambers, who are um, both in their late 20s, I think 28 and 29 at this point. Um, and they started the band a couple of years ago after having been musicians each on their own since their mid-teens. And so they, they've sort of been around the block in uh, making attempts to shoot into the music industry for a long time. Um, doing sort of folkier material. Rianne Teasdale actually uh, was kind of an unbelievably accurate Joanne Newsom uh, carbon copy in her teenage bands. Um, and none of that went anywhere. And then they kind of plugged into this post-punk revival that's been going on in the UK for many years now. And the story goes that they went to a festival and saw the band Idols and uh, rode a Ferris wheel and and decided then and there that they wanted to sort of shrug off their uh, earnest folkiness and do something more fun and loud and and show that they could get down with the boys on at slamming on their electric guitars and all of that. And that very quickly developed in the early pandemic, really, into a project where apparently they recorded something like 30 songs, but put together a four-song demo tape. And their connections that they developed over the time um, paid off because a couple of the musicians they brought in had connections to managers in London. And, um, and that ended up getting them a record deal in the very old-fashioned way that, you know, you just get your tape to somebody rather than the sort of modern way that we think of as like gigging and gigging and building up an online fan base and attracting the attention of a label that way. And so that's produced this kind of idea of them as an industry plant. But the industry plant really is usually more of a term for like a producer-created band. And that's not what they are. They're just people who are savvy enough and hit the right moment and attracted the attention of producers. But yeah, they sort of came out of nowhere as a result because nobody had really heard anything outside of a few shows around the Isle of Wight and Bristol and a couple of other places. Um, so this video emerged of them uh, lounging around at a country house wearing kind of uh, throwback gingham and, and <laughs> muslin costumes and shrugging and uh, and playing chaise long. And um, it really took off in a viral way. And then those two kind of narratives kind of came together and you got sort of the, both the modern viral band effect and this kind of old fashioned way of going about it. And so a lot of people felt like they'd, they'd come out of nowhere a lot more than they really have. I think. Do you guys know where I heard about this band? <laughs> no. No. From last year's summer strut mega list. I don't know if you guys ended up picking this as one of your picks, but I did listen to the mega list and I did start to whittle it before I realized that uh, the the constraints of maternity leave were going to leave me unable to join you guys. But I've been listening to Sheslong for months uh, <laughs> because one of our dear listeners recommended it to us and uh, was very delighted in preparing for this topic to discover the rest of the album, which um, really tickles me, the, the particular uh, kind of fuck you and Suzanne's of the lyrics and the poppiness of the tunes uh, I, I love. And there are places where you feel like they're just really biting Courtney Barnett's style and they should step off. But I don't know. It works. I'm, I'm into it. I even like the song about how much it stinks to look at your phone. And I feel like between this and the um, 
Muna song we talked about on a on a recent uh, uh, the previous strat. There's like a subgenre of like I hate how I feel when I look into my phone songs, which I think is its own playlist that we probably need to make. <laughs> You know, the thing that really struck me about this album, this this eponymous album, Wet Leg, listening through, is the songs are really short, which I love, which is, I guess, a punk thing, right? A post-punk kind of thing. Really short, like about two minutes and 20 seconds, some of the songs. And to the extent that when I first heard it, I thought, am I listening to one of those samples where I didn't really download the album and I'm just hearing some <laughs> some little piece of each song? But they seem to have endings. And anyway, I, I, I really respect that, that these songs, are, they remind me of little, they're like little pellets, you know, being shot out of a gun or something, or gumballs. You know, they have this... This uh, discrete quality as little units of sound and of meaning as well. And the lyrics are pretty, as so far as I can understand them, because I've only heard the album through a couple times now, the lyrics are, are pretty great, too. Um, this might be from the Looking at Your Phone song. I'm not sure, Julia, but I had this rhyme in my head on the way into the studio that was something like, I don't need a dating app to tell me that I look like crap. <laughs> I don't need no dating app to tell me if I look like crap, to tell me if I'm thin or fat, to tell me should I shave my rat. Right, they're wise asses. Uh, but there's also something kind of feminist about that lyric. I think one thing is that Rianne Teasdale is both um, an incredibly witty and facile lyricist, and a, I think there's something that gets underrated by people who've heard Chase Long too much and not by not heard the rest of the album. She also has an amazing voice, and she mm-hmm. yeah, she uses it sparingly as opposed to the sort of Kate Bush, Joanna Newsom flights that she went on in her early career. But melodically, you know, it's not all just just chatter singing. And um, and even when it is, her sense of timing and intonation are so precise mm. to carry off the effects. And then there's the back and forth between the two of them, which is easy to see if you watch any videos of them playing live. Like, they often crack each other up. And, and um, Hester often just has little background vocal interjections like the the familiar one on Chaise Long is is when Rihanna is going excuse me and Hester goes what mm-hmm. and then they go back and forth <laughs> that way and it's and it really you know as you listen to the music more this sense of uh, a really powerful and inside jokey and mutually comforting female friendship is a big part of this band in a way that that it we don't see enough of you know and mm-hmm. and I, it's something i find extremely endearing about what they do and their subject matter is you know not particularly novel there's been lots of sort of female led rock bands that have gone down this road but the sort of quarter life crisis theme and you know shitty boys theme none of it is heavy handed and it's not and it's very different than the you know, wave of what gets called sad girl indie over the past several years. You know, people like Mitski and people like our beloved Phoebe Bridgers and other people who like probe at these things with this deep, deep sort of melancholy that and that's kind of created its own constituency. And there's something I think very apropos to the moment of young women dealing with that same subject matter with this kind of carefree silliness. And it really yeah, shrugs off I that really significance of burden, you know, that yeah. that I, I think has become a bit of an affectation in indie music yes. in recent years. And this is that's part of, I think, what makes people respond so powerfully to them. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. And also, I just love the idea of, of anybody belatedly taking on an affectation in order to find their and through it find their authentic self authentic sound in the case of a band it's just it's just great and um it's it's the strokes are a comp i think carl you and i threw around maybe on email it seems apropos it's like god it's just so beyond the existing categories at the same time you know contemporary existing categories it's kind of an homage but it's it's kind of new and it's just great rock and roll um it 
it what's weird is how fun it is and how reluctant it is to please at least in a predictable way especially melodically they have a great melodic sense when they want to use it they often withhold it in a little a little bit in in a way that i think really works um there's a curious exception uh i don't want to go out which is just very melodic it's playful it's fetching it's like a little pop gem maybe we could listen to a second of that and then carl will go out on 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 a cut you pick i don't want to go of Courtney Barnett doesn't she have a song that with the exact same theme even maybe the same yeah, title that's, not wanting to go that's out like my that's my least favorite song because it's the one that's so Courtney Barnetty the the um I don't want to go to the party yeah I mean that's that there's definitely touchstones I mean part of the thing about this band is that on every song there's sort of five or six reference points that you, one might think of um which you can look at as a sign of derivativeness or just of a great kind of synthesizing imagination musically. Like one of the things about that song that um, sneaks up on you a little bit, maybe takes a couple of listens to realize is that the guitar riff in it is from David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure through through Nirvana's cover, I imagine, is where they're deriving it from. So yeah, there's lots and lots. You know, I w- I started making lists last night, and I had would end up with like 15, 20 bands. You know, things like from La Tigra and Pavement and The Breeders and Elastica and Blondie, and you know, the different songs. Like all of these things sort of pop into your head, which I find delightful. Although it does make me wonder. You know, it's definitely among the sort of uh, middle-aged music critic crowd that I run with uh, their refreshingness is is extremely popular I'm not sure how much of their audience is people their own age you know like whether this is kind of a great burst of life in the in the rock world um, a rock world that nobody of their generation or a very small pocket of people of their generation care for you know I think they do have hip-hop influences and that kind of thing they sort they talked about WAP the Cardi B, Megan the Stallion single as as like one of the most inspiring things to them to to sort of liberate them and to go in this direction. But yeah, it's a I think that's a question that that stands out about them is is that they're just like a little bit out of phase with time is appealing across generations, but also maybe limits their potential mm-hmm. scope. It's hard to say. Yeah, uh, Carl, we're running out of time. Can you pick uh, one uh, one for us to go out on? Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite song, or at least at this point in my relationship with the album, is Wet Dream, which combines sort of a lot of the themes and a lot of the very witty and cultural reference moves um, that that Rantisdell shows off all the time with this just incredible, like, this is true of a lot of the songs, but it's like hooks within hooks within hooks and like shout along portions and shout along with things that are like obviously ironic gestures. And so it's like it pushes so many pleasure centers that way. Yeah. And plus, who knew Buffalo 66 was a touchstone for Gen whatever they are nihilists? It's great. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah. let's check it out. On DVD. 
Okay, an incredibly fun record made only funner by uh, talking about it with Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic. Carl, please, please come back soon. Um, let's find music on a more regular basis and talk about it with you. Anytime, absolutely. Ah, right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. Well, what do you have? Stephen, you're going to like my endorsement today because I'm reading a poem. And I know you like when one of us brings in a whole short poem and reads it. So I'm reading a poem by Herman Melville, whose poetry I did not know at all. I have a friend who's a Melville nut, just a complete Melville head, you know, has read every biography, everything he's written, and always told me, read his poetry. His poetry is bonkers, but it's great. And Melville's poetry, if you don't know much about it, was mainly written, I think almost exclusively written, in the part of his life when he was no longer publishing, no longer writing novels, when he was, you know, a a functionary, essentially, at the customs office in New York, and just sort of toiling away as a writer privately in his garret, having given up on being a literary success. Uh, And this is a poem about that. It's a poem about art and about making art, and the title is Art. And as you will see, it took me a few times reading it to discover this, but it's actually a sonnet. Art. In placid hours, well-pleased we dream of many a brave, unbodied scheme. But form to lend, pulsed life create, what unlike things must meet and mate. A flame to melt, a wind to freeze, sad patience, joyous energies, humility, yet pride and scorn, instinct and study, Love and hate, audacity, reverence, these must mate and fuse with Jacob's mystic heart to wrestle with the angel art. Whoa. Kablamo. That's that's real good. (laughs) Kablamo is right. Right? I mean, that poem gets it done in 14 lines. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing poem about creation. And the fact that it was written by, you know, this guy who has been just a fount of creation his whole life and essentially never really appreciated or seen in the process of doing it is just Mm. so moving. It's extraordinary. That is such a home run, Dana. Oh, that was that was that was marvelous. I can't wait to like just see it on the page. Thank you. Uh, Julia, what do you have? All right, multi-part endorsement, but I will keep it brief. So as noted at the top of the show, this weekend, uh, April 22nd, 23rd, 24th in Los Angeles at the campus of USC is the LA Times Festival of Books, which is such an amazing event. It has hundreds of thousands of visitors. It has 500 authors. Most of the events are free. There are all kinds of interesting conversations. And if you are in LA and you have not checked it out, which you may not have if you're new to LA because it has been virtual the last couple of years, um, it's really, really worth going. Uh, As noted, Dana and I are both uh, doing panels on Saturday afternoon. So that would be an opportune time to come. I'm interviewing Mike Schur of The Good Place and a new book, How to Be Perfect. Dana's speaking about her book with others. Um, so you should come, but in advance of that, uh, our books team at the LA times put together a really, really great package called lit city, which is all about the history and present of Los Angeles as a literary capital of the world, which it truly is contrary to, uh, what people who don't live here and the ignorant might think or say, um, and within that, there is a really great list of the 65 best bookstores in LA County. And one of those write-ups was contributed by me, hot off of a tip from a Culture Gab Fest listener who told me that I had to check out a great bookstore on Pico called Children's Book World. Um, so when the opportunity came to contribute to our bookstore list, I was like, oh, let me go check out Children's Book World. I'll write up that one. Um, and it is, in fact, great. So Thank you to Claire Joyce, our listener, who pointed me to Children's Book World. If you would like to hear more about what I and she said about Children's Book World, check out the 65 Best Bookstores in Los Angeles at the LA Times website and the rest of the Great Lit City package and attend the Festival of Books. Just a few to-dos for you all uh, for my endorsement today. Oh, Julia, that sounds amazing. Um, All right, I'm going to endorse with just full-throated enthusiasm an essay in the New York Review of Books that's now at least a couple, three weeks old. I I wanted to get to it, and, and now I'm going to, but it's in its way timeless. Because it's it, it it takes directly on this incredibly sad, unkillable uh, 
trend in pseudo social scientific thought, which equates some feature of human biology with some highly social, highly historically determined outcome. I mean, the most famous of which being, you know, the attempt to biologize human intelligence and then claim that occupational outcomes in a modern economy are somehow, you know, uh, inexorably correlated with it, i.e. the bell curve. Of course, it always, it probably begins in racism. It never mi- admits that it does, but it always ends in racism. It needs to be killed. And it needs to be killed not just because we have hothouse flower liberal sensibilities and we don't want to talk about like we're a too you know uh frightened of subjects that make us uncomfortable or we're too politically correct or we're too science illiterate all of that is bullshit and the scientists who take the time and patience to talk about these things as sadly they're forced to do every few years and certainly multiple times a generation always obliterate it right it never is left standing and it's happening once again so let me say the name of it is called why biology is not Destiny. It's by M.W. Feldman and Jessica Riskin. And let me just give you a quick flavor of it. If you, they say, the authors say, if you find a magical hammer that whenever you swing it rewards you with funding and professional advancement, you look at your research area and see nothing but nails. Genome-wide association studies are the social sciences' new magical hammer. What I love about it is it has rhetorical verve, uh, a, a kind of calm and steady um, sobriety to it and complete and utter control of the science, unlike the people that they are obliterating. Feldman is a professor of biology at Stanford, uh, the founder and co-director of uh, Stanford's Center for Computational, Evolutionary, and Human Genomics. I do not suspect that this person takes a backseat to anybody on the science involving this subject. His co-author is Jessica Riskin. Uh, She's the Francis and Charles uh, Field Professor of History at Stanford. I strongly suspect she takes a backseat to nobody on the subject of the history of the abuse, uses and abuses of social science. Together, they have something that is ironclad, and it is basically a very precise historically and scientifically scrupulous STFU at this particular brand of racism. It's terrific. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's just a, it's an incredible performance and it allows you to know that what your instinct tells you as a non-scientist and a person with eyes living in contemporary America is true. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, And Dana, thank you so much. It was a joy. Yeah, it was a really fun one. Great to have Julia back. Uh, You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by the uh, composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and Carl Wilson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Really fun. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slat Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we discuss a recent Gawker essay, The Pity Me Personal Essay by Rachel Connolly. Uh, and I think we also wanted to talk a little bit about the resurgence of Gawker as a place that publishes things one might want to discuss. Uh, but let's start with the essay itself. Dana, can you please share your response to it and also start by briefly summarizing the thrust of the argument? Yeah, as I understand it, and I mean, as as we'll get into, I'm not sure that this argument is incredibly well-mounted, but I think what the author is trying to do is to classify a certain type of personal essay that she sees as endemic to the web lately that is different from the trauma plot essay or, you know, writing about personal trauma, which we've discussed before in the show, you know, the, the somewhat disturbing phenomenon where people, often young women, are supposed to trot out their worst personal experiences and kind of use them as fodder for an essay. That is not what she's talking about. She's talking 
talking instead about, I mean, what I would what I would classify in a kind of simple way as whining, whiny personal essays that take small inconveniences and try to turn them into um, into big narratives about what's wrong with society today. And I think that might actually be a legitimate thing to take pot shots at. I'm just not sure that the examples that she gives necessarily are both doing that or are both doing the same thing as each other. And the two main essays that she cites, recent ones, that she sees as doing this this kind of whiny um, work are one by Sarah Hippola in The Atlantic called The Things I'm Afraid to Write About. I actually read that essay un- unconnected with the, you know this person disliking it. I had already read it and disliked it for an entirely separate reason, which is that it's a somewhat standard essay about cancel culture and how horrifying it is to be canceled for the things that you're not allowed to say. And Sarah Heppel is incredibly vague about what these things are exactly that she wants to say and can't say and would be canceled if she did say. Um, so that's why it didn't quite seem to fall under the rubric that um, that Rachel Connolly is writing about here. Then the other example that she vaguely gestured at, um, which is an essay that I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, is Anne Helen Peterson's essay about millennial burnout, which then she later turned into a book about the same topic uh, and which to this author seems to be, you know, someone whimpering about something that affects only them and their privileged life. And I don't really feel that way about that essay either. I actually think that that essay did a really good job of putting its finger on a certain kind of granted white collar, maybe a problem more of the laptop class, but um, but of a, of a real labor issue that exists in in the economy, especially the, the post-pandemic economy. So I guess this seemed to me a little bit like someone saying, I hate when essayists do this and proceeded to cite two essays that aren't really doing that. Steve, what did you make of it? I mean, I I like I admired its verve. It seemed um, to actually have the conviction that it stated. It didn't seem like an exercise in just producing another finger wag at all. This this writer is very smart and clearly is bothered by it. I agree, Dana, that unless you cite more examples. It's hard to know how pervasive it is, though I suspect maybe people who consume a certain kind of media that I don't will be familiar with it as a genre. I mean, every genre has a genre has a lifespan and late in the game, it becomes almost purely imitative and people are finding a way to fit any experience into it. And I thought this was just a kind of extension of the trauma plot, which she also also cites as a kind of corollary to her own argument which was very good about bringing in a ton of evidence for how the word trauma and the concept behind it has gone so general in the culture. It literally is a paradigm for fitting any human experience into what was originally meant to refer to trench warfare and surviving the Holocaust. And, um, but anyway, I, I just, I, I feel very sorry for totally different unrelated reasons for the people who are writing this, because I suspect that this is a generational story about growing up very well-educated, extremely literate in a culture that has no use for you, at least within the standard modes of an unfolding life in a bourgeois society, and by and large. And the general feeling among that generation, as I understand it, is that the boomers devoured everything, including the sustainable you know, sustainability of the planet itself uh, and are still hogging all the oxygen and there's no foothold in this world. And so there's this odd kind of discrepancy, Julia, between an amazing amount of, of, of middle-class affluence and nothing for the educated fruits of it, these young people to purposeful to do or, or or very little relative to what once existed. Specifically, if you're a writer and an aspiring writer, it's unclear whether you can move to New York anymore. It's unclear what the publishing business is anymore. It's unclear what the you know magazine business anymore. I mean, these things are all shell the institutions within a, within such within which such a person might get, you know, re-socialized into being a young adult with a sense of purpose and an income and maybe some benefits and like a life ahead of them has so substantially disappeared. And this is kind of what they're left to talk about. I mean, there isn't, there isn't poverty, depression, war, you know, you know, and so I, I feel no sympathy for the wild 
hypertrophy that goes into taking a small discomforting thing and turning it into an epic. Um, but I feel an enormous amount of sympathy for the social social situation that that um, such writers, I think, have found themselves in. Wait, what do you mean there's no war and poverty? Yes, thank you for I th- giving I think me... you skipped past that point too fast. No, 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 I was talking about a subset of the educated elite who tend to publish and write and have the expectation of literary careers. This world is plagued by poverty and war. Believe me, that's not, I'm not a fucking moral ninny. My point is, is that there's an old life trajectory available to people who receive first class elite educations that's largely unavailable, especially to the literary subset of that crowd. And I would think a person who's experienced warfare up close or poverty personally would have plenty to write about and would. They wouldn't write about what this Gawker article is taking a task. Yeah. I mean, my my main response to it is that the bar for saying personal essays aren't written as well as they could or should or used to be and are a little lame and sad sacky is you want the essay making that claim to be itself like a delightful little cataract of glistening moments and and fun reads. And I just think the bar is, is very high for what this kind of essay should be written like. And Rusty Foster in his wonderful daily media newsletter today in tabs had this to say about it, which basically uh, sums up my view. Rachel Connolly has a post in Gawker today about the current prevalence of what she calls the pity me essay as contrasted with a different kind of essay that she gives the accurate but stylistically disappointing name, quote, good personal writing. I have no argument with the premise or her choice of examples, but unfortunately, the post itself is a kind of pity me essay full of humorless melodrama like this is why I find so much of recent personal writing tiresome. It is too often defined by melodrama, humorlessness and excessive self-pity. It goes on from there a little bit and uh, I don't know, just kind of has a little bit of verbal fun. And that was my takeaway. But I do, I I do enjoy the resurgence of a gawker that publishes things that are interesting to think about and surprising and strange. Um, I feel like it is creating a little corner of the internet that um, does not follow the the precepts of the algorithm. And for that, I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Slate Plus listeners, for uh, your support of our show and of Slate. We'll see you next week.